Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Eric Dobmeyer. Eric is the CEO of Seattle-based Chinook Therapeutics. Chinook is seeking to develop drugs for kidney diseases. About 10% of people on Earth, about 800 million people, are estimated to have some degree of chronic kidney disease, ranging from mild forms that take years to worsen, all the way through end-stage renal disease that requires dialysis. America spends $130 billion a year on managing and treating kidney disease. And yet, the therapeutic options are pretty limited. Chinook is developing a phase three drug candidate, atrocentan, for IgA nephropathy, a disease of localized inflammation in the kidneys. That one is a small molecule. Chinook also has an antibody drug candidate in phase two, aimed against a target called April. That drug is also for IgA nephropathy. The founding thesis of the company was to use some of the tools of precision medicine, which have successfully changed the way many types of cancer are treated, but this time use them for the kidneys. That vision hasn't exactly materialized yet, but the FDA has shown some willingness to consider surrogate endpoints, biomarkers, that make clinical trials a bit more practical to run for chronic kidney disease, making this area a bit more attractive for drug developers who have to consider the time and expense required and the probability of success for various therapeutic areas before deciding where to invest. During a biotech financial downturn like the one we are in, Chinook finds itself in the fortunate position of having late-stage clinical assets that will deliver meaningful clinical data readouts within the next year. It's not in danger of running out of cash before it finds out how safe and effective its drug candidates are really going to be. Eric comes to this opportunity after a long career on the business side of biotech. He's a lawyer by training and made his way from working on the details of contracts to more strategic business development and eventually many other functions, investor relations, communications, manufacturing, and corporate strategy among them. He was there at CGEN, the leading maker of antibody drug conjugate drugs, for 15 years. CGEN has now agreed to be acquired by Pfizer for $43 billion. Now, for a word from the sponsor of the long run, Occam Global. Occam Global is an international professional services firm focusing on executive recruitment, organizational development, and board construction. The firm's clientele emphasize intensely purposeful and broadly accomplished entrepreneurs and visionary investors in the life sciences. Occam Global augments such extraordinary and committed individuals in building high-performing executive teams and assembling appropriate governance structures. Occam serves such opportune sectors as gene cell therapy, neuroscience, gene editing, the intersection of AI and machine learning, and drug discovery and development. Connect with them at www.occam-global.com slash longrun. Now, please join me and Eric Dobmeyer on the long run. Eric Dobmeyer, welcome to the long run. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here. So, Eric, we're here sitting in Seattle in person. You have the honor of being the first person I've recorded in Seattle with in quite some time. That's great to hear. (laughs) So I think we can talk a little bit about this place as uh, maybe an underappreciated biotech hub uh, a little bit later in the conversation. But I want to start off just where I do with most of these episodes, a little bit about who you are and where you're from. So where did you grow up before you came out here to Seattle? Yeah, I'm from upstate New York, originally outside of Buffalo. So I spent my whole childhood there, basically, and then uh, went to college on the East Coast and uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm a recovering lawyer, so I went to law school at Berkeley, and then moved to Seattle about 25, 26 years ago. So upstate New York. What what kind of what town was this? Just outside of Buffalo, a town called Clarence, New York. So mm-hmm. small town. Uh huh. And what kind of schools did you attend there? I went to um, to public school in in Clarence in, until eighth grade, and then I went to a, a school in in the city of Buffalo called Nichols School uh, for high school. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. What did your uh, parents do for a living? My dad's a dermatologist. My mom's a math teacher. So, um, you know, I, I did get exposed a bit to science and medicine as a kid through my dad. Uh, he used to take me to his uh, his office on weekends when he ha- needed to see patients. And uh, he would let me hang out and play with the liquid nitrogen and do science experiments while he was seeing patients. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> How old were you when that uh, was? Probably, you know, 10 or so, something like that. Yeah, elementary school. Mm-hmm. Do yeah. you have any brothers or sisters? I have a sister uh, who's about uh, 16 months younger than me. So uh, just the two of us. Okay. And so there was a scientifically minded and math oriented household. Was this kind of understood that one of the values that, you know, you got to do well in school, Eric? Yeah, that was a big, big thing for my parents is education. And um, in high school, I did a lot of math and science. But um, when I got to college, I really focused on liberal arts. I was a history major. I took some math and science courses, but I wish I'd taken more, honestly, given the line of work I ended up in. Mm -hmm. But um, it's always been a big value for my family. So you went to Princeton. Yeah. Uh, what, what, why did you uh, veer off of the path of science and medicine while you were there? I don't know. I, I just, I, I kind of gravitated to history. I got really interested in, in that and the stories of, you know, how civilizations were built and fell. And I focused a lot on, not on your traditional sort of U.S. European history, but on um, my thesis, my senior thesis was on South Africa in the 1500s. Um, and so I really got interested in these, these kind of esoteric areas of, of history while I was there. Well, was this around the time South Africa was going through its change from a Apartheid? Like, why South Africa? You know, I, I got this, uh, I met this thesis advisor who was a South African. And, um, you know, the, the time I wrote about in my thesis was when it was under Dutch rule, actually. And I wrote about something called marinage, which is a, um, a, a when slaves escape from their captivity and set up their own civilizations on the outskirts of the, um, the civils, you know, the, the slaveholders. So uh, I wrote about a community in, uh, in near Cape Town on the south end of the, of the Cape uh, that was living in a cave and sort of, it, it, was, it, it was a lot of primary research, you know, a lot of like primary sources that we were able to, to find and use for the thesis. And I just, I, it was just really fascinating to me um, and kind of led probably into my interest in law as well uh, from there. Mm-hmm. What were you thinking that you might do? Were you thinking maybe anthropology or sociology or history or something like that? I didn't really know, to be mm-hmm. honest. I was trying to take courses that really interested me in, in college. And then I took uh, I applied to law school and took a year off after law school and moved to the Bay Area. And uh, I was a bike messenger for a while. And then I got a job as a paralegal at a law firm. Um, and then then ended up going to law school the, the following year. But at the time, I wanted to do... Um, environmental law or public interest law. I think a lot of people go into law school thinking that's what they want to do. And um, over time, that kind of changed into to other areas of interest while I was in school. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, what, so as you were in law school at Berkeley, you said, yeah. um, what, how, how did you start thinking about specializing or uh, where you might want to apply the law? Yeah, when you're in law school, you generally, you know, you have two summers between your first and second and second and third years when you can do internships. And that's where people tend to get their permanent job from quite often. So the first year I worked at a um, basically a legal aid services group in uh, in Medford, Oregon. And I was thinking about maybe that as a career path. And I did a lot of work during as internships during the school year as well um, with the homeless outreach project in, in Oakland was something that I was involved in. And then the second summer, I worked at a law firm in Alaska, in Anchorage, actually, doing environmental law. Um, what I learned about environmental law is that the, the jobs to sort of protect the environment are, are few and, and far between, and you end up often working to help <laughs> corporations exploit the environment. So that, that soured me a little bit on, on that area of law. Um, but, but I had also applied for a clerkship while I was in law school. So I knew I was going to have a two-year clerkship for a federal judge in San Jose after I graduated. So I was kind of doing uh, the, the Alaska uh, firm as a, as a way to get some experience and, and spend the summer in Alaska, to be honest. That's what I wanted to do. Exploring the West. Yeah. Uh, Medford and then Alaska. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you're, you're casting about here in those years. You're not really sure what it is. I've never had a plan for my career. I've always tried to do something that 
I was really interested in and I thought I could be good at and then try things and, and see how they go. And, and so, you know, if you had told me that I would be a biotech CEO, you know, 30 years ago, I would have said, really, you know, <laughs> I guess it's possible, but it wasn't certainly wasn't part of my plan originally. Huh. Okay. So what was your first job? You went to a corporate law firm after school, right? Was this Cooley? So I went to, I, I clerked for two years for a federal district court judge down in San Jose. So I was doing, you know, basically assisting the judge with litigation. And then um, after I, I finished that, I moved to Seattle and started working at a firm called Heller Ehrman, which is a, a big, uh, it used to be a big California-based firm that had an office here. And I stayed there for about a year, year and a half. And then I went to a new, newer firm called Venture Law Group, which was over in Kirkland. And this is a kind of a new uh, concept firm with, that only worked with high-tech clients and took equity as part of their um, payment. So they would often get founder stock or they would purchase Series A or Series B stock as part of the financings and then take the companies through IPO. And then often after IPO, the companies would transition over to a large corporate firm and, and, and VLG would continue cycling through you know, startups. So this worked really well during the internet bubble. Um, in the late 90s. And, you know, we like incorporated Yahoo and, you know, we, we had all of these companies. A lot of were, a lot were internet, some were wireless or software, and then a small portion was biotech. Um, although at that time, biotech was not as in vogue, maybe as some of these other high tech areas. So I had a few biotech clients, one of which was this startup. I helped um, help them get started called Seattle Genetics. They were a spin out from Bristol Myers Squibb here in Seattle. And help them get their initial license and get their Series A funding, uh, ultimately Series B funding and IPO. So I did all of that work as their outside counsel while I was working at Venture Law Group. And this firm uh, was was getting by on the um, the equity. And as, as you said, as long as those companies were going public and becoming liquid, you could get paid. Other than, You weren't making the usual hourly rates that well, firms... Well, actually, we were getting paid legal fees as well, but we were highly dependent on this startup ecosystem. So, you know, free-flowing venture capital money, lots of companies uh, very quickly raising money and going public. And But then we, we kind of didn't keep the companies after they were public. Mm. So when once the internet bubble burst and there weren't new companies being formed and there wasn't this venture capital flowing and we hadn't retained the more mature, stable companies, that's when the firm had some challenges. I had left already. Um, I kind of left during that that whole process of the firm um, kind of struggling a bit. And they ultimately, the firm ultimately merged with Heller, so my old firm, and then both, then that firm went bankrupt uh, a few years later. So okay, when, so, but when did Cooley enter the picture? Cooley's been around for, for a while. I never actually worked at Cooley. So what happened is after Hellerman went bankrupt, um, then the, the lawyers from that VLG group who had gone to Heller then ended up at Cooley, many of them. So, oh, okay. So a lot of those folks are now at the Cooley office uh, here in Seattle, uh, and, and as well as in the Bay Area, there are a number of VLG lawyers there. So it's interesting that like when I left uh, the law firm to go to this startup, CGen was when I went there was about 50 people, and then the market cap was about 150 million. That was perceived by all my friends and family as being a really risky decision. You're going to the startup biotech when you're on the partnership track at a law firm. But as it turns out, that company is still around, that bio baby biotech, and both those law firms are gone. So you don't really ever know what the risky decision is, ultimately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so CGen, Seattle Genetics, at yeah. that time, this was 2002 yep. you went to join there. Company had gone public the prior year, had 50, 60 employees, like mm -hmm. you say. What was it that attracted you to the place? What what did you like about it? So I'd been working with the company for three or four years at that time, and, and basically being kind of like the general counsel, but at a law firm, outside general counsel. So doing all sorts of work, doing licensing, doing, you know, we weren't doing an M&A, but I was doing a lot of M&A for other clients as well as the IPO and just general, general work for the company. And um, I think what real I realized is what motivated me was a purpose beyond just um, a lot of the companies I was working with VLG were selling a widget on the internet or making your cell phone go a little bit faster or a piece of software. What, but but these biotechs were actually helping people live better lives, and 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 I think that really appealed to me to have sort of this higher purpose and. Um, 
like I said, my dad was a doc- was a doctor. I'd always sort of had an interest in science, so I thought, you know, this seems interesting and challenging. Like I said, that's what really grabbed me was like, let's try something new. I I thought I probably didn't want to be a lawyer my whole life. I really liked. I like getting involved, um, and at the time I was doing a lot of deals, but when you're a lawyer, you often get involved in a deal after all the major terms are already negotiated and you're asked to just draw up the documents. And I wanted to get involved earlier, be involved more in strategy and, and just see how a business operated. So I took the leap. Clay Segal, who was the CEO at the time, really uh, pitched me and I, I went in-house in 2002 as, um, as general counsel. And then what really one of the lessons I really learned at CGEN is as the company grew, when I got there, I was probably one of two people who didn't wear a lab coat. Well, we should probably yeah. back up just a yeah. second for those not familiar. Seattle Genetics, it was developing antibodies for cancer. Um, and at that time, the, the antibodies had just sort of um, hit their stride with Rituxan, Herceptin, Avastin, I think was still in the clinic. It hadn't, but Genentech had um, shown you could make these targeted antibody drugs against certain targets for cancer and they could really help people. And Seattle Genetics um, had some of those kind of traditional antibodies, but also antibody drug conjugates that attached the chemotherapy or the potent toxin to deliver it right to the cancer. Right. Exactly right. We had both naked antibodies, we called them, and, and antibody drug conjugates. And at the time, antibody drug conjugates were not well accepted as being a, a modality that people wanted to use. Um, they were pretty. People were pretty down on them. Um, so you know, when I when I started, we were tr- you know we were trading at like five dollars a share, and you know we needed to raise some capital. We need to do some partnering. There are a lot of things we need to do over the years to kind of keep the lights on. Well, this is why Bristol-Myers Squibb got out of it. They, yep. they had invested in it for years and thought, well, it's just not really happening. <laughs> right. Right. There was, a, there was an article, I forget which magazine, maybe it was Time or one of those that, that called these the magic antibodies, the magic bullets. But whenever you see an article like that, it's usually about a decade before they actually become therapeutics. And along the way, I think Bristol just saw too many problems and, and decided to close down their whole Seattle site. That's how CGEN was formed. They licensed all the technology from Bristol for a million dollars up front and a, and, a, and a royalty stream. So it was a pretty amazing opportunity. And so you came in there as general counsel, still a small company, publicly traded, and yeah. and your uh, your mandate was what? So initially it was to you know to be the general counsel. So it's all the securities filing, contracts, uh, licensing deals, all of that sort of thing. But um, as we started growing. Um, there were new things we needed to do. We needed to do IR. Who's going to do investor relations? Why don't we give it to Eric? Or we need um, business development. Let's give that. And so I just I, I just kept raising my hand saying, I'll do it. And like, I'll, I'll, I'd love to figure this out. So I ended up with program management and corporate strategy and ultimately uh, process sciences and tech, technical operations. So all of the um, manufacturing uh, parts of the company, as well as for times, I did some of the pre-commercial stuff before we had a commercial team, market research and market analytics, new product planning. Um, I think by the end, I had about five or six different titles there over 16 years. Um, mm-hmm. And by the end, I had I was overseeing about 350 employees at the time. I think the company was about 1,200. And so this sounds like just an amazing education in like biotech, everything there is to know. Yeah. Uh, you um, had to... Do, the business development seemed like a really important part uh, of your evolution, as because this is when you know I was covering CGen and I I thought of you in that that business development lane. Uh, at least that was a big part of how you interacted with the outside world and got to know the rest of the industry. And this is because, right? Because CGen had that ADC technology, the ability to link uh, the antibodies to the toxins and the certain kind of toxins themselves. I mean, they were really working really hard on that fundamental, putting that package together that nobody else had really figured out. And it created a lot of licensing opportunities as other companies saw, well, there was, there may be something here that they wanted to try out. (laughs) And you had to figure out like the strategy and then the terms right? That's right. Yeah. And I I think when we first met, you were at the Seattle Times and I was at Seattle Genetics. So yeah, going back a ways. Yeah. 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 So um, what was your business development experience like in those years? What were, um, 
How are you interfacing with the rest of the biotech community? Yeah, so um, what we were trying to do is focus on companies that had an antibody that bound to a cell surface receptor that would rapidly internalize because that's what you need for an ADC in order to release the payload inside of the target cell. Um, but that they had, a, but a company that had antibodies that didn't work well on their own. So antibodies can have different kind of functions as naked antibodies. They can have direct signaling. They can have effector function. So some antibodies like rituxan or herceptin don't need to be conjugated to be effective. But a lot of antibodies do what we call they decorate the tumor. So they bind to the tumor, but they don't kill it. They don't do a lot. They're just there. Um, and you want to find antigens that rapidly internalize so that the ADC can bind, the antibody binds to the cell surface receptor, it gets taken inside the lysosome, and then the, the linker gets cleaved and the drug gets released and kills the, the, the tumor cell. So we were looking for those kind of opportunities. At the time, it was very speculative that these drugs would work. So we did a couple of very early, very cheap deals. Our first deal um, was with a company called EOS, which was eventually purchased by Protein Design Labs. We did a deal with Celtech, which had an office here in Seattle. And then the one that kind of put us on the map was the Genentech deal that we did. I think it was in 2003. Um, it was a broad multi-antigen deal. And, you know, with, with Genentech, who was the pioneer in getting, you know, antibodies approved for cancer coming into this technology, it kind of really validated what we're doing with the technology. And, and I think what we did is... We did these out-licensing deals where we would give targets to companies and they would pay us upfronts, milestones, and royalties. And those brought in some, some capital along the way. But ultimately, the deals that became the most significant to CGEN were these 50-50 collaborations that we did with companies who couldn't afford our terms. Because our terms kept going up as the technology got. Because when we started, we were doing probably like 100,000, 200,000 per target. By the end, we were doing 12, 12 million per target. So along the way, there were a few companies that couldn't afford those terms. One was called Agensis, a company down in, in Los Angeles that was bought by a big Japanese pharma called Estellas. And another was Genmab, which is a a European biotech. And we did 50-50 collaborations where they would provide the antibody, we would provide the ADC technology, and then we would develop it together. And that those deals, those two deals have actually resulted in two of the four products that CGen now has in its pipeline. Mm -hmm. So TivDAC, or um, yeah, I'm forgetting the names right now. I know the... Um, I know the generic names, but you know it's it's a, it's a drug for urothelial, urothelial cancer, and then uh, another drug as well. So we kind of did a combination of cash generating deals and product rights generating deals, and it continued to validate the technology at CGen and and spread kind of the the ADC technology into more hands around the industry, and it's now really blossomed in the last few years. I think there's twelve. ADCs that are now approved for cancer. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and f three of them are at CGen and, and were big contributors to yeah. the most recent Pfizer acquisition that was announced. Okay, so you, you had this experience at CGen where you, you covered the waterfront. You learned so many aspects of the business. Uh, you culminate as Chief Operating Officer 2017. And then what did you decide to do next? Yeah, so I was, um, I'd been Chief Operating Officer for about six years. Um, and clearly the CEO at the time at CGEN wasn't going anywhere. I really wanted to try my hand at being a CEO at that point. And I was approached by uh, Peter Thompson from Orbamed, who had started a company here in Seattle called Silverback Therapeutics. It was also an ADC company, but instead of cytotoxic payloads, they had immunomodulatory payloads. So they were looking to bind and bind to tumor cells and deliver a payload that would, would recruit your immune system to kill the cancer cell. Mm -hmm. And they had some pretty amazing data um, preclinically just showing I'd never seen like with our with our technology at CGEN, these tumors would would shrink and, and go away in some cases. But with this technology, we were seeing these tumors shrink, necrose, turn black, and disappear within short periods of time. It was really quite amazing data. So I took the job there as CEO in early uh, 2018. And kind of the, the uh, mandate there was we need to raise a Series B, and we need to um, explore some partnering transactions and then hopefully go public. This was when companies were going public really quickly back in the, the boom times. So um, I, I took the job. I went on board. We, we were able to successfully pitch um, VCs and get two term sheets. Um, we were getting some partnering interest as well. But then, unfortunately, 
when we went into tox studies, um, we had this really bad toxicity in both species that where we tested the drug. Um, animals dying, and we didn't really know what was going on. So we needed to, to retrench. Um, we decided uh, to uh, do a, a riff, so we had to lay off half the company um, and really go back to research and figure out what was happening with this technology. It was a brand new technology. It was a really bold approach that no one had tried before, and, and unfortunately, um, there were some kinks to be worked out. So I actually laid myself off as part of this because I told Peter, you don't really need me um, because I, we're not going to be raising a bee and going public right away. We need to go back to research and figure out what's going on. So uh -huh. um, that's, I was only, so my first job in biotech was 16 years. My second job was six months. <laughs> <laughs> that takes a certain amount of uh, self-awareness or confidence. I don't think a lot of CEOs um, would say, gosh, the company doesn't need me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, and, you know, at, at that time, it, there, there's a lot of a, there's a backstory here as well, because when I was at Seattle Genetics, we, our lead drug there was a lymphoma drug called Etcetris. And when, in, in 2008, I was actually diagnosed with lymphoma. So while I was at CGen for, for several year period, I was going through treatment and, um, I ultimately have now been in remission for over 10 years. So I, I had that experience, which really hit home for me, you know, what it's like to be a patient and how important the work is we're, that we're doing. Wait, well, wait, you didn't yeah. actually take the C-Gen drug, did, did not, you? No, I had a different, I had a B-cell lymphoma, follicular uh -huh. lymphoma. So I, I took uh, Rituxan and, and some of the other drugs, um, whereas uh, Etcetris is geared towards Hodgkin and T-cell lymphomas, but yeah. it's still in the same kind of milieu. For right? sure. It, yeah. it, uh, it validated that early career decision where you said, I want to work on things that are really meaningful to people. I mean, exactly. it, it hits home for you. Yeah. saved your life. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, then I went to Silverback and my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, and she has been through treatment and has now been in remission for five years. So we're both doing well due to, due to the, you know, sort of the wonders of modest, modern medicine. So, wow. you know, and we were working on a breast cancer drug at Silverback. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, sort of gallows humor. I'm really hoping I don't get kidney disease when I'm working at Chinook. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, see, so things uh, went sideways there at Silverback yeah. for you. And so then you're, you're what? You're unemployed for a little while. Yep. Uh, what, what were you thinking you might do next? So I wasn't sure. So I, I'd been, I've been on probably four or five biotech boards. So that was one idea was to do some board work and, and sort of not, not go back to a full-time operating role for a while. I also talked to a couple of venture funds about being an entrepreneur in residence. So that would be a, a gig where you go in, work with the fund, do some work on behalf of the fund, but also look for a company that they can fund and then you can run. So I was thinking about those. I took about, I guess I took about six months off. And then um, I was I was approached by a headhunter and and about a company in Vancouver that was doing kidney disease. Um, and my initial reaction was, well, I I live in Seattle, not Vancouver. This was before the pandemic when you kind of needed to live where you worked. I was so. going to say, uh, did you decide that you wanted to stay in Seattle? Yeah, we've all we we're we're we've been here for 20, it's home now. We've been here 26 years. So I did not want to move at that point. But this is actually an important point because um, here you were at this point in your career. You're well established. Had been uh, you know rose to the ranks at a, a you know an anchor local biotech company, publicly yeah. traded. You interfaced with all the investors and all these BD people around the country. You were the kind of person that a VC could look at and say yes. Um, I can uh, put my confidence in this guy as a startup entrepreneur, um, you know, in, in your prime years. Mm -hmm. uh, and there weren't a lot of people who fit that profile outside of, say, Boston and San Francisco. It's it's one of the things that our region needs. Mm -hmm. And and you did. I mean, was that a consideration to you, or is it just this is your home and and where you'd raised your family and and where you wanted to be? Yeah, that was really more of it, that I, I really didn't want to move. Um, and, and I figured there would be opportunities here, whether it was a new startup or, you know, something that had already been started that I could come and work at. So, um, but I didn't expect Vancouver. And so when I, you know, I went up to Vancouver to meet to meet Gerald Davis, who's a, the partner at Verson who started this company. And what they had done there 
at Versen is they had t- they had a group called Inception Sciences, which was an internal research group that did uh, build to buy and company formation within Versen. And they decided to take the team in Vancouver, which was about 15 really talented scientists, and put them into a company called Chinook. They named all their companies after winds, and, and Chinook is a Canadian wind that comes down off the Rockies. Oh, I thought it was a salmon. <laughs> <laughs> yep. A lot of people think it's a fish or a helicopter, but it's actually a wind. So I went up and met with Gerald and the team, and I was just really impressed by the people. They're just really good people, very smart, uh, great science. And the vision to make a difference in kidney disease resonated with me because cancer, there's been so much progress that we've made over the years that uh, it's become crowded. It's really hard to find patients uh, for trials that haven't already received multiple lines of therapy. You have to do a lot of combinations with things like PD-1 inhibitors. It's really just you know, it's great that we've made so much progress. It's become harder to develop drugs in cancer. Whereas kidney disease, in, in most of the diseases, when I, when I started at Chinook, there were no treatments approved for these diseases. There now are a few, but still, when you compare it to oncology, it's got to be a tiny fraction of the number of therapeutics. So that really grabbed me, and I thought, why not? And, and I started in, in 2019, and I was going to Vancouver every week for one or two nights and spending time with the team. And, uh, you know, really enjoying learning about kidney disease and starting to build a company. What was their founding idea that they were going to, wasn't it that they were going to use some of the new tools to try to um, better define some of the specific patient populations who could benefit from sort of what you call precision medicine, precision uh, kidney medicine? Exactly. Yeah, it was a precision medicine approach, an approach that's worked so well in cancer and other areas. So, um Unfortunately for kidney, uh, there hadn't been a lot of focus on what actually causes a lot of the kidney diseases. There's, you know, there's obviously dialysis and transplant, which are huge um, businesses for a certain set of companies. And um, there are very few drugs to treat the disease. So most, most of these kidney diseases are treated with blood pressure-lowering medication and steroids, and then a whole lot of unapproved drugs like even chemotherapy drugs, fish oil, rituxin. So just a grab bag of things that really don't work too well to, to slow down the disease. Occam is a global executive search firm focused on entrepreneurs and venture capital investors. Occam Global not only recruits CEOs and other C-suite leaders, but also plays a strategic and tactical role in building out optimal boards and advising on corporate governance issues. Whether it be an executive chairman to provide leadership guidance for a first-time CEO or functional experts in R&D, business development, finance, or operations, Occam's broad-based network in life sciences provides a maximal number of potential options to their clients. Occam's board clients can be companies at the earliest stage, those preparing for a public offering, or public companies seeking to enhance an established board. Connect with them at www.occam-global.com slash long run. Let's step back just a bit on kidney disease because yeah. I haven't had occasion to talk on this show about yeah. it much. There hasn't been a whole lot of innovation, as you point out. How many people are suffering from different forms of kidney disease, both in the U.S. and around the world? So 10% of the global population has kidney disease. And a lot of people don't know it. And there's different degrees of, of you know, how, how much kidney function you retain. It can often be a silent disease where you really don't realize your kidney function is declining until you're quite close to, to having serious problems. 10% of the world. That's eight, that's 8 billion people worldwide. Yeah, so 800 million. 800 million people. Yeah, 37 million in U.S. is the number that you generally see that have some form of kidney disease. And this is chronic. It builds over time. And then ends up with kidney failure, dialysis. Yeah, in, in in many cases. So so in the U.S., a lot of kidney disease is associated with diabetes. So you know we do have an epidemic of you know obesity and metabolic disease here, as well as diabetes that can cause a lot. Of, so kidney disease can be sort of a secondary effect of another disease. And then there's a nut. We're we're not really focused in diabetic kidney disease. We're more focused in the rare severe diseases like IgA nephropathy. Um, there's a number of glomerular diseases. There's some autoimmune related diseases. But but overall, when you look at kidney disease, um, basically uh, people 
people often progress over several decades towards uh, what we call end-stage kidney disease. Um, and what happens then is there, there's dialysis and transplant. And I think there's sort of a fallacy in this space that, oh, we can always get dialysis or transplant. It's not that, that dire of an outcome if, if your kidneys fail. But I think what's underappreciated is how bad um, that is for patients and for our healthcare system. So if you're on dialysis, it costs about $200,000 a year. You have to go to your physician or the dialysis clinic over 150 times a year. And um, your life expectancy is less than five years. So it's a worse, it's worse outcome than having sort of a metastatic solid tumor, for example. Mm-hmm. So, so often dialysis is used as a bridge to transplant. But let's talk about transplant. So there's a, about a four-year wait list now for kidneys, and a lot of people can't get one unless they have a live donor. So, and, and then if you can get a transplant, it's about $400,000 for the transplant. You have to be on immunosuppressives for your whole life, so you're at more, more risk of um, cancer and infectious disease. And your kidney's probably only going to last 10 to 20 years. So if you're young, you're probably going to need several kidney transplants. We talk to patients with IgA nephropathy, which is our, our lead indication, who have four kidneys. Because when they get a transplant, you don't take out the old kidney, you just add a new one. So it's really a bad outcome. We're spending $130 billion a year on kidney disease in the U.S., most of that's on dialysis, transplant, and supportive care. Very little of it, it's on therapeutics. Now, you said earlier that we don't have great ideas on what's causing this. I, it sounds like there might be a variety of contributing factors. What are some of the, the main suspects? Yeah, the, by, by far in the U.S., di- diabetes is the, the largest cause of, of kidney disease here in this country. Um, we have a pretty good idea of how that, how that works mm-hmm. uh, and what's happening there. Um, in other countries, it's different. Like in Asia, IgA nephropathy is actually the largest cause of, of kidney failure. It's a more common disease over there. And they, they have also have less diabetes in those populations due to lifestyle and, and genetics as well. So it depends on, on what part of the world that you're in. Um, there's also a Now, gene. when you say IgA nephropathy, what, what's, what's that? Is that an autoimmune um, attack on the kidney? It is. It's an autoimmune disease. And, and basically, it's a, it's a disease that often manifests after a patient has a respiratory infection. And their immune system starts creating these aberrant IgA molecules. They're called galactose-deficient IgA. Um, it's, it's basically an a, a aberrant sugar. On the, on the, and normal IgA is a, is a normal part of your immune system. But their system, immune system goes a little bit haywire, makes these GDIGA1 molecules. And then there, another part of the immune system recognizes those as foreign and makes autoantibodies to those GDIGA1, which form immune complexes. And then they circulate in the patient's bloodstream and get just deposited in the kidney. So they tend to cause damage. It's an autoimmune condition that's systemic, but the damage is caused when they go into the kidney and they cause inflammation and fibrosis and slowly progressing loss of kidney function. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So you got a couple of large contributing factors here with diabetes and an inflammatory condition. Are there other? There are. There's genetic causes. Mm-hmm. There's a um, there's a gene called APOL1, which is found in people of West African descent, and it was um, it's it's an ad- adaptation that was um, originally protected p- people from West Nile virus, um, but it also causes more risk of of kidney failure. There's actually a drug right now being developed by Vertex that targets APOL1, and they're and it, they're. They're testing this not in just one disease, but across several diseases in people who have this variant. And that's where we want to get to with kidney disease. Instead of just looking at a kidney on a slide and saying, this is what it looks like. Here's, here's the damage that we're seeing to the glomerulus or the podocytes. We want to say, why, why is that happening? Mm-hmm. And, and treat the disease further upstream, you know, whether it's a genetic cause or environmental or you know, some other disease that's causing it. Okay, so this comes back to that earlier point about the precision Mm -hmm. uh, opportunity. We've gotten all these tools now for drug discovery that have been applied to great effect in oncology and and rare disease and other areas, but not fully uh, leveraged by the biopharmaceutical industry. You looked at what was going on with the Versant crew in in Vancouver and and decided to to make this your next move. so what did you do next? You, you do what an executive does. You raise some money. Uh, you, you find some assets. Well, 
what came next? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I, I misspoke on eight ball one. It's, it was originally, um, manifest for sleep, sleeping sickness was what it was protective against, not West Nile. So, oh, okay. Um, so yeah, so I came to Chinook and we were a series eight company. Our lead program was for kidney stone disease. Um, so it was for something called hyperoxaluria, which is, um, has different severities, but in the most severe form causes kidney failure by the time people are in their late teens or early 20s called PH1, primary hyperoxaluria 1. So we were developing that. We had some programs in earlier stages for other kidney diseases. And, and the plan was we're going to do organic drug development and build a pipeline and you know use our Series A money, do a Series B, and, and kind of build it over time discover your own molecules internally yep. and develop them. Yep. And we had one lead, which is actually in the clinic now. It's our third program. It's called Check 336. But we um, that would have been our, our furthest along if we had continued forward on that plan. But we got interested in um, the endothelin pathway. And this is a, a ETA1 is a target that um, that we thought was, was really significant across a wide range of chronic kidney diseases. And we thought about developing our own drug for that target, but we found um, that there was a drug that AbbVie had developed originally for prostate cancer and then later for diabetic kidney disease that had all the properties we were looking for. So in kind of a flyer, we thought, let's, let's talk to AbbVie. Let's see if they'd be willing to license this phase three ready drug to us, you know, or this little series A company no one had heard of in Vancouver. But now this is this is coming from um, a discovery focused organization. So like the science is leading you here. Yeah. And then you being uh, experienced business development executive and you're, you're surveying the landscape, seeing what else is out there. And and you saw well maybe we should talk to did you to these people at Avi did you did you know them from your previous work or so so the original idea came from Andrew King who's now our chief scientific officer he had worked on this program pre previously at Avi and then um, my chief operating officer Tom Frolic had also you know started thinking about this and then when I came in. Um, I did know Henry Gosebrook and Jace Demotis at AbbVie from, from different parts of my career. Okay. So, so you had a conversation with AbbVie, yeah. and, and what did you learn? We learned that this was sitting on the shelf, and they really hadn't thought about it for a while. Um, and they had a bunch of, you know, this is a, a once-a-day pill, so they had a bunch of drug supply that we could use to get started. Um, but they had the reason this drug had uh, was was not they weren't doing anything with it is they had closed down all their kidney disease efforts. So what they had done is they had done a trial called Sonar in diabetic kidney disease. It was over a 5,000 patient trial, and they uh, they shut it down early because they had decided kidney disease is too hard. We're not gonna we're gonna focus on oncology and other areas. And when they shut it down, they only had about half the planned uh, events that they were expecting for the trial. But when they looked at the data, they had a p-value of 0.029. And if they had continued for the whole trial, they, they would very likely have a drug on the market now. Wait, so they made a strategic decision to halt the trial halfway, save their money, cut their losses, whatever the idea was. Yep. But what year was that? Oh, that was like uh, 20, maybe... 2017, something like that, somewhere in that time frame. But then later on, the data from this interim yeah. cohort came in and yeah. they looked at it and they, they saw what? They saw a p-value. So they were doing a hard kidney outcome trial. So that's what's required in diabetic kidney disease. So it means you've got to follow patients till they progress to end-stage renal disease or they have doubling of serum creatinine, which is a lab marker. So it takes years to get there. So when they looked at that hard kidney outcome, it was a p-value of 0.029, which is statistically significant. To get approval on a single trial, you need a p-value of below 0.01. But if they had accrued all the events, they very likely could have gotten there. What we also noticed is this drug was reducing proteinuria, which is a measure of protein in your urine, quite significantly. And what's interesting is the FDA has now recently been approving drugs in IgA nephropathy based on proteinuria. This so, is a surrogate and yeah. a, point, a biomarker you can capture quickly. Yep. With, uh, that is that does appear to be correlated with the the downstream outcome. Yeah, that everyone you can, wants. You can measure proteinuria at six to nine months after starting treatment, and there's quite a bit of data that if you can reduce proteinuria by twenty five to thirty percent. 
it results in very significant preservation uh, of kidney life. So 30% reduction in proteinuria correlates with about 11 more years of kidney life in IgA nephropathy. So IgA nephropathy is the disease that has the most data. There's a paper out there that, that looks at about a dozen different trials and does this correlation. We think proteinuria ultimately is beneficial across a wide range of CKDs, but for now, the strongest evidence is in IGAN, and there now have been two, two drugs approved in IGAN based on proteinuria. There's a drug called Tarpeo from Clitotas. It's a, it's a reformulated steroid called budesonide. Um, and then there's also a drug called Sparsentin from Trevere. Now, this was a decision made by the FDA that proteinuria was going to be an acceptable, approvable endpoint. That's right. Um, yeah. So suddenly, you you got to make business decisions about you know how much time and money it's going to take to run a clinical development program. Instead of it taking years, yeah. you think maybe you can get the data you need after, what, six months? Yeah, so so the sonar trial that Avvi did was 5,000 patients over many years. I don't know how long it was going, probably five-plus years when they closed it down, whereas the trial we're doing in IgA nephropathy with that same drug is uh, 320 patients. And proteinuria is measured at six months, and um, and EGFR at two and a half years. So much smaller, much faster, more efficient. Okay, so this is something tractable. Yeah, you, you can actually go out and raise money from public investors to to support such a program. Exactly. And, and the data um, you you mentioned the EGFR outcomes data being positive on a 0.29 p value, but what did it say on proteinuria? They had about a 30 to 35% reduction in proteinuria in that trial, very consistent across With, the patient population. And that's that's above the threshold of what you think you need right. to, to be clinically meaningful. Exactly. So you, you were able to obtain this, this asset. Um, they, they just were, were even though it, it had generated some positive data, it was still just sitting there on the shelf. Yeah, they, they didn't want to take it back into um, in, in kidney disease. And they thought it was a good opportunity for the drug to still, you know, possibly benefit patients. We did a deal where we paid a very small upfront payment. Uh, Avi got 15% of our equity, so they got stock in Chinook. And then there are downstream milestones and royalties that are basically post-approval, so back-end loaded uh, deal terms. And we were able to sign that deal in December of 19. So we spent a good part of, of 2019 getting that deal done. And we were growing a little bit as a company. We were probably 20 to 25 people at that time. But then suddenly, you know, it's a little bit like the, the dog that caught the car, right? We've got this phase three ready asset. It's the end of 2019, and we need to build a development, you know, the soup to nuts development, ClinOps, biometrics, you know, medical, all, all the pieces that you need to do a phase three trial. So in early 2020, we started a Series B fundraising process. Um, we were talking to VCs. It was a little hard because it was like barbells. We had research and we had phase three and not a lot in between. It wasn't the normal way to build a, a biotech company. So we were, we were making some progress, but then the pandemic hit, right, in, in March. We had only been doing this for a few months at that point. And we really didn't know what to think at that point. We're trying to raise, you know, $100 million um, during a pandemic, right? In a B round, private yeah. capital. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so what happened? So we, we continued the, the Series B discussions, but we came across this opportunity with a company called Aduro, which was it used to be an immuno-oncology company in the Bay Area, quite a high flyer when it initially went public. And it was focused on Sting and some other targets um, and had some very large collaborations with Novartis and Lilly and Merck, and, and, but unfortunately had fallen on some hard times. But what they had was $250 million in cash, a public listing on NASDAQ, and they had this asset called Bion1301 that they had originally developed in multiple myeloma. It's, an, it's a monoclonal antibody, um, like we were doing at CGen, um, targeting April, which is a B-cell antigen. And they had originally thought, well, we can use this in myeloma. They went up to very high doses. It was really safe. It was depleting its target, but it wasn't having clinical benefit. And then they started looking at the biology and decided, maybe we should try this in IJ nephropathy. So they did a healthy volunteer trial, and they were just starting uh, some work in patients when we got interested. We looked at it, and we thought, we can get a public listing, a bunch of cash, and another drug that kind of fits in between atrocentin and the earlier stage program. So we spent most of 2020 getting that deal done. So this one, the way you describe it, <laughs> you know, 
this this became a reverse merger. That this is the way Chinook ended up going public by merging into Aduro. But when we say reverse merger, we often think of that as like some empty shell of a dead company, and it's strictly for financial purposes to get your ticker, to get the cash on the bank uh, on the balance sheet, and to avoid some of the uh, I don't know, I guess the traditional IPO road shows or whatever. But you're saying you actually had a strategic uh, benefit here as well with that mid-stage clinical asset, the April antibody. I hate to even call it a reverse merger because it's not your typical empty shell. Um, You know, our management team is running the combined company, but we did have quite a number of employees from Maduro that stayed on and, and buy in 1301 is a really important part of our pipeline. So uh, technically a reverse, but an unusual reverse. And this happened fall of 2020? Is yeah, that- October of 2020 is when it closed. Okay, okay. Yeah. But now, I, I was at an event with you recently where you said, gosh, you know, this reverse merger thing, it was really hard, and I'm not sure I'd do it again. What, why was that? Reverse mergers are hard for a couple of reasons. So, um, I, and I, and I, what I would say is it was worth it because we got by in 1301. But, you know, if it's just an, an empty-ish shell, it's a hard way to go public for a couple of reasons. One is if the management team of the company you're merging with isn't fully on board, it can be hard to get the deal closed. There's a lot of social issues that go into it. And it, it's, you know, when you're at a company that's failing, it's hard to let go sometimes and let this other company come in and take over. The other part that is really challenging is, when you think about it, you, you complete the deal and you've got shareholders from the the company you're merging with who have lost a lot of money on whatever they were invested in before, in this case, immuno-oncology, and are suddenly being asked to be shareholders of a kidney disease company. They know that nothing about. They don't know the management team. So there's a lot of turnover on that side of the ledger. And then on our side, we've got VCs who have made money um, you know, and may want to get some liquidity. So you get a lot of shareholder turnover. It's really hard to, to build momentum in the public markets when you've got so many shareholders turning over. You've got to find analysts that want to cover you. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's hard work. It took us about two years to build the shareholder base that we want to have. And now we have great shareholders. We have about a dozen analysts covering us. So we've really made good progress, mostly on the fact that we've had really strong clinical data and we've executed well. But it's a hard way to go public. But the resulting company, it's, you've got this phase three asset, Atracentan, uh, for Ig nephropathy, and that mid-stage asset, the antibody uh, against April. Yep. Uh, and then you still have discovery work. The, yeah. the team that's in from Vancouver, they're still there. Exactly. Yeah. So we've got the we've got the Atracentan for Ig nephropathy, Bion thirteen and one for Ig nephropathy. We have a phase one asset for kidney stone disease mm-hmm. um, called Check three three six, and then we do still have the the Vancouver team doing research. It's grown actually to about forty people in Vancouver in our research group. Okay, and now so. A couple years have passed since you've worked out all of these financial and operational issues. You've educated the market about who you are and what you do. Um, you had some data come out last fall at a kidney meeting for that lead program. What, what did you uh, find there from with Antracentan in your own hands? Yeah. So in this disease, in IJ nephropathy, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, a proteinuria reduction of 25 to 30% is kind of what you're looking for to be clinically meaningful and potentially approvable from a regulatory point of view. So we did a a phase two basket trial with atracentin where we tested it in IJ nephropathy and also diseases like FSGS and Alports and and actually DKD, diabetic kidney disease as well. But we've only reported data so far from the IGAN cohort. And what we've seen is proteinuria reductions in excess of 50%. Now, this is a single arm trial. It's only um, 19 patients. Um, and we don't have a comparator arm. And so it's in it's, you know, in a, in a several countries, but not like broadly globally, but the data has been fantastic, you know, way above that sort of 30% threshold that we'd be looking for. So we did that cohort in parallel with doing the Align trial, the phase three trial that we're doing right now. And we're going to have the proteinuria data from that trial uh, in the second half of this year. So we're within pretty short period of time from having the readout from phase three. And that's going to be a six-month uh, analysis of the proteinuria decline? Yeah, we, we have disclosed we're having some discussions with FDA right now. The other two drugs in IGAN that have been approved did it on a nine-month endpoint. 
So FDA has asked us to consider um, doing doing it at nine months as well, which we can do. So we're having some conversations with them now whether 24 weeks is long enough or whether it's 36 weeks. And it's really not about the proteinuria effect at either of those time points. It's about having enough EGFR data to feel comfortable that you're seeing the right trend um, when you submit for accelerated approval. So that's something that's ongoing, but it'll either be six or nine months. Uh, but you're also seeing uh, the the effect appears to be, or the numbers appear to be improving with time, right? With the per- proteinuria, it's it comes down a certain level at three months, a little more at six, and even a little more at nine. Is we it- actually haven't reported any nine-month data. So okay. the data we reported is out to six months. And we do see some continued benefit bes- between sort of three and six. Mm-hmm. But... Um, it's not clear that you're going to get more benefit by going out to nine months. It's possible. We don't have that data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what did you see in terms of a safety profile? It's very well-tolerated drug. Really, the, the whole class of ETA inhibitors, the main side effect is fluid retention. So that's something that has to be monitored carefully in a diabetic kidney disease population because people with diabetes who have kidney problems often have some cardiovascular issues as well. So fluid retention can put more of a toll on their heart. So it's something that AbbVie had to manage through some some screening protocols in the sonar trial. In IgA nephropathy, these patients are several decades younger, usually sort of 30s, 40s, and don't have cardiovascular issues. So thus far, we haven't seen fluid retention be a problem uh, in this patient population, but that's the main thing we'd be looking for. And this is an oral small molecule. You take it once a day. Right. Uh, is there any screening protocol, like you know, back to this precision concept we talked about earlier, or is this just kind of anybody that presents with IgA nephropathy would be a candidate? Yeah, the main, the main, we're looking for ways to screen and stratify patients, but the main way to do it right now is through proteinuria level. So if you have protein, protein in your urine above about a gram per day, you're at high risk. Even above half a gram per day is higher risk of, of progression. Um, so that's basically the screening tool that we use. In our phase three trial, we're only enrolling patients above a gram per day. And the reason for that is when you're doing a randomized trial, you need a control arm that's actually going to progress so that you can see a difference between treatment and, and control. But um, we're looking for ways to look for signatures and other ways to really predict which patients are at higher risk. As of, as of yet, no one's come up with anything really good. But this should be a pretty easy measurement to do. I mean, one gram of, of uh, protein down to half a gram. Yeah. Uh, if you're doing that, um, you're doing really well. Right. And, so, uh, and that's a standard screening protocol for these patients. Doctors treat to proteinuria in IGAN because it's something you can easily measure and, and monitor uh, during the course of treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, what about where does that second program, the anti-April antibody, stand Um in, in development. So that program is in a phase two trial right now. So we've, um, this is a, an antibody. So it the, originally was delivered through IV dosing and we've switched to subcutaneous dosing. So it's an, it's an injectable and we've reported data from the IV cohort and from patients that started on IV and switched to sub-Q. And then we've got a cohort two where patients were on sub-Q dosing all along. We've presented that data several times and we're gonna have more data this year from that trial. And what we've seen with this drug is even more proteinuria reductions, 50 to 70% when you get out. It takes a little longer to get the full benefit. We'll probably use a nine month endpoint in our pivotal trial, but what we're seeing is once you get out, because we're blocking April and blocking these immune complexes from forming, it can really have a dramatic effect because you're, you're basically turning off the faucet on the immune complexes that are causing damage. So we're in phase two, and we've got a phase three plan to start by mid-year. So we're doing all the work to get up and running on a phase three trial uh, mid this year. And are there other potential indications for that one, like lupus nephritis? You know, it's really one of the unique things about targeting April is it doesn't deplete IgG very much. So we're depleting IgA and IgM like 80%, maybe more sometimes, but uh, IgG only goes down 20 to 30%. So we really would want to target diseases where they IgG is not a big driver. So that would be things like IgA vasculitis, maybe IgM nephropathy, but there's a it's not likely to be something we would do in lupus because of IgG does drive that disease. Got it. Um, now, I think this might be an 
obvious question, but you said earlier that this a- antibody was made as an IV formulation and you switched it to sub Q. Mm-hmm. Why did you do that? For convenience for patients. It's, you know, a lot of, in, in the nephrology community, not a lot of nephrologists are set up with infusion suites, whereas in, in oncology or autoimmune disease, a lot of docs have infusion suites down the hall. Um, but with, with this disease, it's just not not normally done. It's also more convenient, you know, and a, a sub-Q dose can be given in a few seconds through, you know, injection under the skin and actually over time can be given by patients at home to themselves. So instead of going into the infusion suite, pre-meds, you know, getting an IV put in, it takes a few hours minimum. It's just something they can quickly do at home. So is there a... Uh, back to this question on stratification, is there a way to stratify these patients who um, are, are better candidates for an anti-April antibody up front? It's really, again, proteinuria is the main way. Um, you know, theoretically, you would want the patients that would benefit the most from this mechanism would be ones who had more inflammatory disease and better preserved kidney function. Uh, you can look at kidney function as with EGFR. So you probably wouldn't want to treat patients who are too close to end-stage renal disease because if their kidneys are already really damaged, turning off the immune complexes isn't going to help them as much. But but currently the trial design is pretty similar. It's above a gram per day of protein in the urine. It's um, you know we want to have the EGFR above 30 because once you get below that you're getting closer to having kidney failure. So but. Mm-hmm. We're, that's what we're looking for. And w- one thing that would be really interesting with BION 1301 would be a, to do a treatment biopsy study. But that's difficult because um, a kidney biopsy is, you know, an invasive procedure. It's a needle inserted into your kidney to get some tissue. And it's it's a difficult thing to get. It, those biopsies are not done sequentially like they are in oncology, for example, very often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But both of these assets are mid to late stage in development. Uh, conceivably could reach the market, um, you know, in not too, not the too distant future. What, where do you think, I mean, last thing I want to ask you, Eric, is like, where do you think kidney disease therapies are heading in the next five or 10 years, both at your company and from the industry at large? Yeah. So, so you made a good point. Yeah, we're one. I think it's pretty unique to have two late stage assets with data uh, like we've got. So I think that is something that differentiates us from a lot of biotechs. Um, what I'm hoping happens with kidney disease, and our mission at Chinook is to make dialysis and transplant unnecessary for kidney disease patients. It's a bold mission. It's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to happen in every disease. But with the kind of impacts we're making on proteinuria, I could conceive of us extending kidney disease or extending kidney life in IJ nephropathy by decades through the through this, and we want to do that across other kidney disease, um, especially rare severe disease. I think what we're going to see over time is more drugs being approved and being used sequentially or in combination with each other. And I see many of these diseases, in particular IgA nephropathy, maturing like some of the indolent hematologic malignancies have matured when we've got diseases like rituxin and Gleevec and and other things that keep people in remission with a good quality of life for long periods of time. And these diseases become chronic rather than acute. Well, the sheer number of people who who could benefit from these, it's um, when you really add it all up, it's it's kind of staggering. It is, and, and I think it's a it's a part of a trend across our industry, which is we've focused a lot on acute diseases and not as much on chronic disease. And when you think about how we could really make an impact on health globally, it's things like cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, these these things, metabolic diseases that people. Um, live with and are live with chronically and don't have very good treatments. And I think that's where we're going to need to move as an industry in the future is to, to provide treatments for those type of conditions. You know, back to last thing I want to close with is a personal anecdote. Um, you know, you'd mentioned being able to benefit personally from some of the innovations that have come along in monoclonal antibodies for cancer. Um, I, I remember distinctly early on back in my Seattle Times days interviewing George Rathman, who was um, founding CEO of Amgen and then later ICOS here in the Seattle area, developed Cialis. Um, And um, George, in his final years, had um, end-stage kidney disease. Mm -hmm. He was on dialysis. One time I met him. And, you know, he he wasn't in great 
quality of life. He wasn't in great shape. Um, you know, it was, um, it, it, it made an impression um, that, you know, here's someone who has made big contributions to the industry um, and there's nothing quite there for him right yep. at, at this moment in time. Um, but um, if he were around, you know, if someone like that were being treated five or 10 years from now, it might be, it might be a very different story. I sure hope so. And, you know, I think that the other th- factor that's come into this as well as COVID. So um, COVID actually killed about 10 to 15 percent of people on dialysis in this country because, you know, they they couldn't stay home. They needed to get their dialysis and they, they were, you know, they had other health issues. And it also has caused it's going to be causing and has caused, you know, downstream effects on the kidney as well. So. It's something we need to really keep keep working on because it's such a huge health problem. And like you say, um, dialysis is not a great outcome. A lot of people can't get transplanted. Even when they do, it's, it's not a permanent solution. So. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I and everyone in the audience listening is, uh, is rooting for you. So best of luck. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.